2: not the donkey or the elephant. This is the
1: podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do
2: you? If you've been
1: paying attention at all, you know there's been a lot of rising and falling going on in the American Evangelical Church. It started with the rise and fall of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, but there's also been the rise and fall of Carl Lentz and Hillsong, New York, and the rise and fall of Bill Hybels in Willow Creek, and the rise and fall of Ravi Zacharias. You get the point. All this has Christians talking about the role of celebrity Christians and whether they are good or bad for the church. Caitlin Beatty is out with a new book. It's called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. Caitlin was the executive editor of Christianity Today and now is with the Christian publishing house. She knows the celebrity Christian world from the inside. In our conversation, we discuss who is a celebrity Christian, but maybe more importantly, who creates them. It's weird because Christians say they don't like celebrities, and yet most of the books we read and podcasts we subscribe to and conferences we attend involve celebrity Christians. Who made celebrity Christians? Maybe us. Maybe we're at least partially responsible. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin Beatty, welcome to Truth Over Tribe.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Hey, there's obviously something wrong inside of evangelicalism, and to be honest— I denied it for too long. I thought it was mm. something on the fringe, right? I referred mm-hmm. to it in a conversation I had with Kristen De DeMay. I thought she was pulling out the crazy uncle and painting <laughs> with too broad of a brush, you know? But uh-huh. then at some point, it just becomes kind of undeniable. I mean, let's just recount it here for a second. Liberty University, largest Christian university in the world, and the president is forced to resign amid scandal, Ravi Zacharias, one of the most popular Christian apologists in the world, guilty of sexual abuse against women. Hillsong, Mars Hill, and their leaders being forced to resign. Kanakuk, the largest Christian sports camp in America, has abuse problems. Southern Baptist Convention report issued not that long ago, and they're hiding predators, it sounded like. So you were the executive editor at Christianity Today, and now you're with Brazos Press. So mm-hmm. you've got a pretty good perspective on the American church. I mean, you know, not infallible, but you've seen a lot. You've been on the inside for a long time. From your vantage mm-hmm. point, what do you think's wrong with evangelicalism?
0: Well, Keith, we're starting off in a very depressing place. I've been in evangelical institutions for over a decade. When I was at Christianity Today, we regularly received tips about famous Christian leaders, household names, people with massive followings, people who we kind of naturally trusted to be who they said that they were, to be leading lives of integrity and as a journalistic publication, needing to dig into those tips and figure out the truth and realizing that in some of the cases, the truth was actually worse than we had realized. And that has an effect on how you view the church in America. You know, it's not a rosy picture right now. I think part of the issue is that we have tended to elevate individuals over institutions. So people are put into positions of... Leadership and authority probably before they've proven a kind of groundedness or spiritual maturity because of their charisma, their speaking power, their vision, their passion, they attract people who want to follow them and kind of place their trust in them. But there aren't always attendant measures of accountability. You know, people who can really say the hard thing (laughs) to the charismatic leader. You know, oftentimes people are afraid to stand up to the charismatic leader because they want to benefit from being in the person's inner circle. They derive some kind of attendant power from their proximity. Or, you know, the leader is a bully and they don't want to be on the receiving end of that. But yeah, I mean, at least going as far back to Billy Graham, the most famous evangelist of the 20th century, but even before him, Billy Sunday, Dwight Moody, you see really charismatic, well-spoken men who can attract massive followings, are very eager to use mass media, to be on television, to be on radio, to kind of use those tools to reach as many people as possible, but tend to operate outside of institutions. And I think institutions is where we have attendant accountability, where we can really be known as leaders and measures of holding it to account leaders when they are clearly misusing their power, when individuals are kind of operating outside of the institution or when the institution kind of centers itself around the personality or the persona of the individual, we have problems. And I think that that is just in the water of evangelicalism in the U.S. We prefer our charismatic leader over and against the kind of boring, dusty institution of the church.
1: Yeah. And I want to dig into more of that in just a moment, your book, Celebrities for Jesus, you deal with a lot of these issues. And I don't disagree with anything you just said. In fact, I think I agree with all of it. It's just that even inside of the evangelical institutions, even inside of the Southern Baptist Convention, even inside of Liberty University, I mean, I understand that you still are talking about flawed people in charge of all those institutions. And yet, there's something that seems pervasive, like almost Mm -hmm. an unwillingness to practice what we preach. Or Mm -hmm. it almost makes you wonder, do these people believe what they say they believe? Am I the only one who's not in on it? Like nobody really believes this, (laughs) but it's really hard. Has it been hard on your faith to watch what's happening in evangelicalism? Do you feel yourself growing more cynical?
0: (laughs) Oh, yes. I became cynical a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you raised a really good point, Keith, about institutions, right? It's not just kind of fallen or flawed individuals, but there's something broader in the water. And I think this connects to the conversation about celebrity. I think in general, in the United States, at least, evangelicals want things big. And if there is growth, and if there is success, and there is money to be made, that can be received as God's blessing. (laughs) And if it works, we're going to do it. Without asking, are the ways in which we are trying to get success actually affecting us negatively in the process? Like actually having a spiritually damaging effect on us and the people that we're trying to attract. So I think evangelicals are pragmatists when it comes to kind of growth and success. And I think we're probably in a stage now where we're realizing... We need a better metric. We need a deeper metric to figure out if we're going the right way. I have a very complicated relationship with evangelicalism. I came to faith in Christ in evangelical waters. I had a positive experience growing up in an evangelical church. I went to an evangelical college and had a wonderful experience there. So I don't have the kind of hurt that I think a lot of other millennials who grew up in the church have. I have been very disillusioned. I think especially over the last six or seven years, it feels like the layers are being peeled off. We're kind of like seeing behind the curtain. And that can be very painful. At the same time, to be disillusioned is to come to a place where you're not living in an illusion. (laughs) I don't think anybody wants to live in an illusion. And so in some ways, and I feel like I have to say this as a journalist, like I want to live in the truth. You know, I want to see reality for what it is as much as we can. And I'm glad that there is this reckoning because I think at the end of it, whatever that is, and we're still definitely in the middle of it, but I think at the end of it, we will come to a more sober, clear-eyed, and healthier way of living out the faith in our time.
1: Yeah, I understand that there's a sense in which living in reality, facts are your friends. And so we don't need to hide from the truth. At some point, I think that evangelicals started caring more about their institutions than they did about people. Like they put the welfare of the institution above the welfare of the family or the individual. And they protected the institution at the cost of people and at the cost of truth. And then it turns out at the cost of the institution and at the cost of, of genuine faith in Jesus. So In your book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church, you wrestle with what a celebrity is. And I want to get to that because we've been talking on Truth Over Tribe a little bit about celebrity Christianity, celebrity pastors, and I think it's a little bit hard to define. Mm -hmm. In other words, Mm -hmm. what's the difference between celebrity and being well-known? And so I'm going to put you on the spot here for just one second, and I'm going to throw some names out. And I want you to tell me if they are celebrity Christians, okay? Are you ready? <laughs> okay, I'm ready. All right, let's just start with an easy one. Tim Keller, yes or no? Yes. Beth Moore. Yes. Jackie Hill Perry. Yes. <laughs> Matt Chandler. <laughs> yes. One more. Tish Harrison Warren.
0: <laughs> That's actually... Uh... No, I actually don't know. I'm kind of stumped on that one. Okay,
1: so that raises some good questions here of what is a celebrity Christian? Mm -hmm. What's a celebrity Mm -hmm. for Jesus? And what's just somebody who's well-known? Because I think we use the word celebrity Mm -hmm. Christian in a kind of pejorative way, right? And yet Mm -hmm. my guess is we have a certain degree of respect for some of the people that we just were talking about. So help us understand that and sort through all that.
0: Yes. So that was a great test. And I think what you're getting at is how do we distinguish between fame and celebrity, right? Like there have always been famous people. There have always been, in every time and place, people whose accomplishments, whose writing, whose personality, they are known by many more people than they could ever know. And they're appreciated for their accomplishments. And I don't think it's bad to be famous. You know, it's not fair to say, well, because Tim Keller is a household name and people read his books and follow him on Twitter, we can assess something about the state of his soul, right? Celebrity comparing it to fame is a uniquely modern phenomenon that's really centered on the use of mass media and the tools of mass media. And mass media can just add like jet fuel to fame because of how much farther it can take someone's names and words and face and voice beyond a particular time and place. I would say celebrity Christians are pro-mass media. Like they are happy to use the tools of mass media to amplify their message. Another division at Baker Publishing Group just signed Matt Chandler for like a multi-book contract. You know, I wasn't in on the deal and I don't know that much about it. I just saw the news about it a couple of weeks ago. When you have a pastor who has his responsibilities in the local church, shepherding souls, but is also signing multi-book contracts to take their teaching and their voice. In this case, there will be like a Bible study guide and a DVD. And it's not just the writing. It's like the face and the voice, everything that video can capture There is a kind of, let's use the tools of mass media to get this teaching as far and wide as we can. At the center of that, and I see this a lot in book publishing and not specifically with Matt Chandler, but for a lot of authors, the thing that we are signing them up for is centered on their platform and their image and not always their message, not always the quality of their writing or thought platform and image have become so central to what it means to be a successful author. So I don't think that we can say because someone is famous, because they're a celebrity, they are bad. You know, that they're a bad Christian, that their motives are bad. I think a lot of people end up finding that celebrity kind of comes to them and then they have to figure out how to use it. Like, okay, I've been given this platform. I've been given this following... What do I do with this without losing my soul? I think I get kicked out when I feel like someone is really hungry for the platform and the spotlight, when it seems to be curated, something that a church might be investing a lot of money in, when it seems to be oriented around someone's personality and kind of image rather than what they have to say and teach. And we can only know so much of that and people's motives from afar. But I think there's a difference between finding that you have celebrity and then figuring out what do I do with this and how do I be faithful with this versus I am in this to become famous, right? Like I am in this to become a celebrity. I think the story of Hillsong and Hillsong, New York with Carl Lentz, I think it's safe to say that he was kind of put in that position of church leadership to become a celebrity, to be a celebrity, to hang out with celebrities. That feels like spiritually dangerous territory to me.
1: And the book, you do a good job of telling the stories of some of these want-to-be celebrities, and Carl Lentz is one of them. But I think in this conversation that we're having, it shows that it's hard to try to figure out what is wrong with celebrity. Obviously, the motive of seeking celebrity status, seeking fame for fame's sake, is a problem. I don't know that we would say that using technology and modern platforms to get out the message of Jesus— is bad. Right. And yet sometimes it gets confusing. It's really hard. I don't think I have the answer here. But when I was listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and a little bit when I was reading your book, although not to the same degree as when I was listening to the podcast, I started feeling like because Mark Driscoll had podcasts and because he was on the kind of the cutting edge of the technological information revolution, he was one of the first Christian pastors to use YouTube effectively, because he was taking advantage of those things, that that was bad, that he shouldn't have been doing that. So it somehow tainted all those platforms. Uh, you know, hey, Mark Driscoll did this, you have a podcast, maybe you're like him, you know, that kind of a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And it would be hypocritical of me to say that anyone who has a podcast (laughs) is a bad Christian or is like just after the fame, because of course, you know, both you and I are using the tools of technology to amplify a message, to have a conversation. Right. I don't think either of us would say, and therefore that makes you spiritually dangerous or suspicious, right?
1: Well, and you went to the motive part, Mm -hmm. but the motive is so hard to know about anyone else. Sorry for me to know my own motives. I don't know your motives or anybody else's. So you have a definition in your book of celebrity, at least the one you have a working definition. Can you share that with us and kind of unpack it a little bit?
0: Yeah. I define celebrity as social power without proximity. And I arrived at this distillation because you're right. As we've been figuring out, celebrity can be hard to define. But as it pertains to stories that have been emerging from evangelicalism about fallen celebrity leaders, the thread line or through line in so many of those stories is that you have leaders, writers, pastors, social media influencers who have a massive amount of social power, their ability to affect how people think and feel, how they live out their faith what their politics are, how they think about God and the gospel is immense. And yet when you look at their inner circle, they actually are not embedded in deep relationship where they are known and can be known and know others. There is an isolating effect with celebrity. It's almost like, and this happened, I think going back to Mars Hill, as I was interviewing people who were formerly connected to the church, they came in, Kind of before the Mars Hill media empire, Mark Driscoll definitely had his sights set on growth and attracting more people to the church. But he was still embedded in relationship in that church. You know, like people knew him, people could talk to him after the service. Like he was available for pastoral care. And as the church grew and exploded and became this huge phenomenon, and Mark was getting these massive contracts to write books the people who had known him in that previous time suddenly couldn't access him. Like he couldn't fit them into his schedule. He would come to meetings late and leave early. There were like designated spots for him and his family. He had, you know, bodyguards. Like there were all these measures to protect him. And then people who had been in relationship with him in the past could not sit down and have a 30 minute conversation with him. And what can happen when you see that, celebrity power, social power grow, is that you have this ability to influence kind of from afar, but there is an isolating effect. And I think if you sat down and talked with Christian celebrities, but also people in Hollywood, kind of mainstream celebrities, they would say, this is not all it's cracked out to be. Like, I find it hard to have genuine friendships. You know, I find it hard to be vulnerable with other people because so much of my livelihood Is about living out this persona and like what other people want me to be and how they want me to perform. And in the midst of that, it's really hard to be something else. You know, like I kind of feel trapped in this persona that's been created. So I don't envy someone who has massive celebrity growth really quickly. I think that that can be, as we've seen just with so many people, that can be a recipe for disaster. And then when they fall, they fall so hard, you know, like astronomical growth so often is followed by just a horrific fall where there doesn't seem like there's then an avenue for healing or restoration or repentance. Like you are huge and then you are not. And That's really hard.
1: It's almost like you're useful to the institution and then you're a liability and they're happy to ride you as far as you'll take them. Mm -hmm. But then the celebrity who falls or runs into problems is quickly cast aside. So your definition then of celebrity is power without proximity. And- Mm -hmm. I think that the way that works, because if you go back 100 years, you couldn't have had that power without proximity, right? The reason Mm -hmm. that you can have the rise of the celebrity is because of the rise of media and specifically social media, so that in the past, people gained credibility through ordination or seminary training or the institution they were a part of. And now we live in what people call kind of the attention economy, right? You're known by your downloads, your views, your followers, how much money you can generate So do you think we need to return to institutionalism? You know, the sense in which people's authority and credibility is conferred on them by others? Because if you're just the average Christian out there, how do you know who to trust? Who's trustworthy or not?
0: It's a really good question. And I think an easy answer would be like, we should just trust institutions. But obviously, you know, trust in All sorts of institutions is at an all time low because we have seen institutions fail us in every sector of society. Exactly. And so it's simplistic to say, well, you know, just trust the credentialing of the seminary or just trust the formal education or just trust the ordination process or the vetting, you know, because those institutions can be profoundly corrupt. And can be as much in the pocket of business and branding. And we're here for the bottom line as any social media influencer. I do think that as Christians, and I'm just speaking as a Christian, I see in the New Testament this vision of... A body of believers and bodies of believers can look extremely formal and extremely institutionalized and like a house church. But I do think there is a preferential option in Christian faith for community. And most Christian communities over time have featured some sort of hierarchy and process for vetting (laughs) who has the authority to lead and teach. And maybe it's not a seminary education. You know, maybe it's, I know this person. I know that they have studied the scriptures. I know that their motives are pure. I know that they want to serve and not to make a name for themselves. But yeah, your question, who do we trust, is a really good one. At the end of the day, I only trust people I know in the flesh. (laughs) Right. I like Beth more, but I don't trust her in the way that I trust my close friends and family. You know, I think there's something about, relationship and proximity that reveals character and integrity. And that is where I want to place my trust in the people I know in a deep way.
1: So, yes, I agree with you that it's hard to trust or not trust anybody at a distance reality is we don't know them enough to make any kind of judgments like that and yet the people who get the attention the people who rise to prominent status the people who get the book deals are the people who come with their own platforms so in the attention economy it's difficult to know who to trust at the same time like you said institutions haven't exactly proved themselves trustworthy either so the average Christian is kind of in a bad spot. But I think in some sense the average Christian of which I consider myself one, we've done this to ourselves, right? We've enabled this to happen. So what is it the average Christian finds so attractive about celebrity? Why are we drawn to the celebrity Christian, the celebrity pastor, the celebrity teacher? What is it about them that draws us?
0: A couple things come to mind because of the rise of individual power over kind of institutional power and authority, we tend to derive some sense of our own identity from our attachment to specific figures. Like I am the kind of Christian who reads Tim Keller or I'm the kind of Christian who reads Mark Driscoll or, you know, we attach to figures to kind of signal who we are Hmm. to others.
1: That's interesting.
0: And we do this in other realms as well. Like I'm the kind of person who listens to this kind of music or who goes to see these kinds of movies or who listens to this radio station. Like so much of our personal identity is wrapped up in what really comes down to like consumer choices.
1: So we feel better about ourselves depending on who our celebrity is, right? I mean, they are kind of our avatar or something that I'm better than you because I read Tim Keller and you don't, that kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. What else is there that draws us to celebrities?
0: I think a lot of Christians, they wonder if they're really living lives of meaning and purpose or if their life is having a real kingdom effect. And so part of that attachment to specific figures is they inspire me to be great. Like so many pastors who have either come to New York or want to come to New York or maybe came to New York and left, like Tim Keller for them became... Such a model and an icon of the kind of pastoral significance they wanted to have in a city like New York. And I don't have anybody specific in mind, but like pastoring a hundred person church in the suburbs of Ohio, which is where I'm from, like that doesn't feel as exciting and glamorous and dramatic of a kingdom impact as pastoring a church like Redeemer. So I think there's some kind of insecurity about our own lives and these other Christians we attach to them because they inspire us we want to be like them they are our heroes there's an aspirational quality and then all the more exciting if we can talk to them on Twitter like (laughs) like the few times that Beth Moore has responded to something I've tweeted. I don't even remember what it was. It was like, oh my gosh, it's Beth Moore. Beth Moore is tweeting at me. Like, how exciting is that? There's something about they are heroes, but you can also have access to them through social media.
1: You have a quote in your book by Andy Crouch, and he talks about this kind of authenticity that I'm not sure is a real authenticity, right? Like these celebrity pastors, you feel like you know them in a way that you probably don't. And so the most successful celebrity pastors are those who can give off this sense of authenticity. How do they do that? How do they get away with that? How do they project authenticity but hide themselves?
0: Yeah. So many people have written about like a faux vulnerability. (laughs) It's also when we hear like celebrities, they're just like us, you know, like they go grocery shopping, they walk their dogs. Like, yeah, I think we derive some sense of satisfaction from getting a sense that we get a peek into someone's life. Like we don't know them. We've never interacted with them. We never will interact with them, but like they are disclosing personal vulnerable information about themselves that makes us feel some sense of intimacy. But I think it's false intimacy. I mean, I think intimacy can only come from true proximity, from like seeing who someone is apart from their curated presentation of the self. I mean, everything that we put on social media in some capacity is curated. There is a reason we are sharing that and not something else. That is true for me as it is for everybody else on the internet. Like, I don't think that true authenticity is actually available through channels of mass media. Some of this, I will admit, you know, when Tim Keller, I don't know why we're talking about Tim Keller. You mentioned him earlier and now I'm thinking about him. Because I think actually he's a great example of someone who is a celebrity Christian and has kind of managed to navigate it pretty well from what I can tell. When he tweets about his cancer journey and receiving a cancer diagnosis and treatments. Like I don't receive that as him trying to manufacture a feeling of intimacy. I think that he is genuinely sharing, but it's also interesting to ask why do I feel Like, I kind of deserve to know personal details about celebrities. Like, why do I want to know those details? What makes me feel like I want people I follow and like to disclose personal information? And I think it goes back to that false intimacy. It gives us a feeling of connection when we might be actually starved for like real in-person connection. We get like a simulacrum of it when celebrities share from their personal lives.
1: I have friends who will say they like this particular pastor or that particular speaker. And if I ask him why, they'll say, well, he or she is so vulnerable. He or she kind of lays it all out. He or she doesn't hide who they are, or their struggles. They tell us about their struggles with intimacy with their spouse or whatever it is. And it's a little bit of a head scratcher to me because obviously that person has walked into the pulpit or up into that conference or sat down to write that book and crafted a story that may very well have a lot of overlap with reality, but nonetheless, it's a story they want you to hear. And they've been very careful about how they're going to present it. And I think it's Andy Crouch who talks about how, you know, you'll be backstage with people who won't speak to you. Then they'll go out onto the stage, pour out their soul, and then walk back into the room where all the other speakers are. And again, not talk to anyone. So it's kind of this weird phenomenon where we are impressed with someone sharing their struggles, even though, like you said, it's highly curated. And I also feel a little bit like, we like celebrity pastors because they can't call us out, right? We don't know them and they don't know us either. And so they can't really (laughs) challenge us on our sins and problems, right? Mm -hmm. So who do you think is responsible for the rise of the celebrity Christian? Is this an individual problem or is this a structural systemic problem?
0: I think it's both. In my book, I do devote a chapter to critiquing the Christian book publishing industry, of which I am a part, (laughs) and related to that, to the kind of conference circuit industry, and they mutually enforce each other. But I do think that Christian publishers, like all book publishers, understand that celebrity sells, it works as a business proposition. And I work for a company that, of course, wants to make a profit and wants to work with authors whose books will sell but as christian publishers i would think that we would want another metric besides the bottom line kind of dictating who we work with and the kind of messages that we amplify and so there needs to be a kind of recentering in asking attendant questions of spiritual maturity i think it wouldn't hurt to have some questions about credentials <laughs> you know who has the authority to teach on what some kind of way to get to know authors instead of just looking at their social media numbers, like getting to know them as people.
1: So it sounds like you're saying that maybe publishers should be doing some vetting and we should hold the publishers accountable for the authors that they publish. Is that what you're suggesting?
0: Some kind of vetting. I can't speak for all Christian publishers, but I have not sat down and tried to assess a book proposal thinking, is this person spiritually immature? I've asked, do I like the topic? Do I like the message? Is the writing good? And also, what is their platform? You know, but some kind of vetting because what can happen from just a financial business perspective is that you end up signing with authors who have the astronomical rise and then the astronomical fall, and you feel pressure to pull their books because people, as they have turned against, the individual writer they also turn against the publisher like how dare you give them a platform so it can be a financial risk to sign on people with huge platforms without knowing like are they who they say they are i also just think of the mega church phenomenon obviously it's a very successful model of church in the united states and beyond and it's worked many americans come to faith in a mega church context mega churches are big for a reason but i do think that the mega church tends to overemphasize the kind of central usually male leader as a dispenser of content and devalue the model of the pastor as a shepherd of souls because how can someone possibly shepherd 20,000 souls. I know that there are discipleship pastors and there are other pastors who are brought along to kind of fill that dearth. But personally, I do want to be in a church where I can get to know my pastor, that the person that I am listening to preach the word week in and week out, I can also go to for soul care or spiritual direction, or if I need to confess something like some kind of pastoral relationship. And I just don't know what that looks like in a big church where the lead pastor's name is so central to the branding of that church. And they're primarily like a purveyor of content rather than a shepherd of souls.
1: I think I first heard the term evangelical industrial complex from Sky Jathani. Maybe others have used it before him. I truly don't know. I just confess that I didn't come up with that. But it's a genius little phrase because if you're not familiar with it, the evangelical industrial complex is referring back to a speech that Eisenhower gave before he left office and he talked about the military industrial complex and that the military-industrial complex has to feed itself. So his point was, don't be surprised that a defense contractor producing battleships is very in favor of the United States taking aggressive foreign policy action because that helps their business. Mm -hmm. And so the evangelical-industrial complex is, I think, made up of conferences, it's made up of publishers, it's made up of mega churches. I'm sure there's maybe some other elements that we haven't said, but they kind of feed off the celebrity, don't they? I mean, they kind of build the celebrity up, the celebrity Christian, and then they tear them down. Or if they don't do the tearing down, they benefit from both the rise and the fall. So, Do you see the evangelical industrial complex out there? I mean, do you think that's a real thing? And do you think it has significantly contributed to the rise and fall of celebrity Christians?
0: Absolutely. I wish that I had come up with that term. So do I. (laughs) Evangelical industrial complex. Because, yeah, it's, as you said, going back to the Eisenhower reference, it captures the consumeristic elements of evangelical faith, that feel pretty unique to evangelicalism. I mean, I know that there are Catholic publishers and mainline Protestant publishers, but American evangelical faith is as much a kind of spiritual and church-based movement as it is a movement about consumption choices and kind of the creation of content to consume. So publishers, the conference circuit, they have the most to lose if enough people decide we are abandoning the celebrity Christian model, like we want to go back to the roots. We want to go back to the basics. We want to go back to kind of small and we don't want our pastors to be creating video and book and DVD and podcast content. We want something small and kind of boring and unsexy. Yeah. There is an incentive built in to evangelical consumer culture, to prop people up as celebrities, to make people into celebrities. And even when a celebrity falls, they can still come back as like someone who's just really into the message of second chances and grace. (laughs) So then it's just like their branding has been retooled a little bit. (laughs) Like they're still the celebrity. Their message has just changed to kind of be part of a redemption narrative. I know that sounds very cynical. But it's actually really hard to remove a celebrity Christian if they have enough followers and enough people who like their content, they'll come back in some capacity.
1: Well, Mark Driscoll is the perfect example because he's pastoring another church down in the Scottsdale area, I believe. But you're right that there's always been something about evangelicalism that has been market-driven. And some of that is just kind of populism that people vote with their feet and they go to what they like. And that could be for noble reasons, like this speaker, this pastor, this church really nourishes me and I'm growing spiritually. Or it could be from some of, you know, less noble reasons. But there's always been kind of a marketing approach. Christians have always wanted to be around the celebrities as though the celebrity endorsing them kind of makes Christianity cool. I think you say, uh, make Christianity cool again in the book. And I like that line because I think there's something about us that wants to be respected in the culture and the celebrity Christian like Kanye, Jesus is king, you know? Oh yeah, he's on my team now. So I'm a cool person. I'm not an outcast, a social outcast. But I want to talk more about how the evangelical industrial complex benefits from both the rise and the fall. And I want to use the Mark Driscoll case and Christianity Today. So I just went onto the Christianity Today website, and you were a longtime employee there, but it's been several years since you've been there. And I just searched Mark Driscoll and their search bar. And what you find is at the beginning of his ministry, he's hardly ever mentioned. So from 1999 to 2005, there are five mentions of Mark Driscoll's name. But then from 2006 to 2013, so when the church is really growing and the scandal breaks in 2013, there's 109 mentions. So all of a sudden on the rise up, he's getting talked about a lot in Christianity Today, the flagship magazine. And then once the scandal hits from 2014 to 2021, so now here comes the fall, there are 128 mentions. So all of a sudden, he's everywhere because now we're covering the fall of Mark Driscoll. And then, of course, you had the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that brought in a ton of subscriptions to Christianity Today. It was extremely well done. Mike Cosper, by all accounts, a good guy. His social media following doubles. So here's what we find is that Christianity Today, just as an example, benefited from pumping up Mark Driscoll and then benefited from recording for us the fall of Mark Driscoll. Does that make you uncomfortable as a person who's on the inside? I mean, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but you're on the inside of the evangelical industrial complex. I'm not, I'm an outsider. What do you think about that?
0: I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think you are picking up on, at the very least, a reader consumption desire to read about scandal. We are so much more captivated by leaders behaving badly. Than we are by stories of leaders, just like faithfully serving the church in and out, you know, scandal. It feels dramatic. It feels entertaining. We consume it in a way there's a schadenfreude element to it. Like, oh gosh, like look at how bad he is or she is. We feel better <laughs> if we are reading about how other Christians are behaving badly. So at the very least, I think the uptick in CT's coverage of the Mars Hill story Reflects reader appetite, consumer appetite, and editors probably thinking, well, you know, at the end of the day, the stories about church based scandals do really well. They blow up our website, you know. I do know because CT is a journalistic nonprofit publication, there's this philosophy of feeling like, well, if we don't hold Mark Driscoll accountable in the public square, who else is going to? I mean, obviously, the people who he has surrounded himself with at the church have failed to kind of hold him accountable. People are really hurting leaving the church in droves. Like, who is going to talk about this if not us? Who's going to dig into the truth if not us? So I do think that there is a journalistic philosophy and rationale for why you have to cover bad news, like why you have to cover the scandal, you know? And I'm grateful that CT's reporters helped to break both the Bill Hybels Willow Creek story as well as the Robbie Zachariah story because, I mean, as terrible as those stories were... I don't think we get healthier institutions and cultures until the truth comes out.
1: And I'm not criticizing Christianity Today for publishing those stories. I think we do need to confront reality. We need to live in the world that exists. Facts are our friends. I do think they're responding to their readers and what their readers want. So I'm not really criticizing them for this story. I'm just trying to show how complicated it is. And to even emphasize how complicated it is even more. While Christianity Today is doing this work on Mark Driscoll, they have their own problems inside their own organization organization where Mark Galley, <laughs> yes. uh, I don't know his title, but Chief Poobah, I don't know. He is treating women inappropriately in the context of the office and the power dynamic and all that. And there was another gentleman who I think later went to jail for his actions that were far more serious. So I guess this is pretty complicated <laughs> because here's this journalistic organization that needs to cover this to bring us into reality. And yet they're guilty of the same thing. So who's going to cover them exactly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's no innocent parties here.
0: No. (laughs) One of the reasons that I am a Christian is that the doctrine of original sin seems to have a lot of explanatory power in
1: our world. (laughs) Yes, it does.
0: You don't have to look far for evidence that it is true. There are no perfect leaders. There are no perfect institutions. And institutions like CT need as much accountability as any other institution. And that accountability is always going to be flawed because it's flawed people running the organization. In any organization, it's always flawed people kind of behind the scenes. I'm still hopeful that places like CT and then places that reported on CT when the news about Mark Gally and the other former employee came out this winter, the tagline that I hear a lot is, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I don't believe in any perfect institution, but I believe that there are healthy institutions and healthier leaders. And sometimes the really ugly truth has to come out for places to be ready to move to a place of health, you know. But yeah, I am guilty of clicking on the scandalous headline and not the headline about Christians behaving well.
1: (laughs) Well, you co-host a podcast Saved by the City. And it is a production of religion news service. And so I don't visit that site often, but I just popped over there just to see what was on the front page of their website. And a lot of it is criticism of the church and the word celebrity appeared quite a few times in the headlines. Now that was just a random pop in. I don't know if that's normal or not. But it does raise the question of whether maybe the evangelical industrial complex covers the celebrity too much. And so if nothing else, we're put in this situation where we have lots of people who are guilty. So we have the Christian that loves the fame, loves the attention, isolates themselves, is power-hungry, you know, the Bill Hybels, the Carl Lentz, the Mark Driscoll, all the stories you tell— in your book, but we also have the evangelical industrial complex who builds them up. In other words, they feed off of each other. But then we have the average Christian, the person like me, the person sitting out in the church pew. And what they end up doing, interestingly, is being drawn to it and demanding more of it. So they are turned off by a Mark Driscoll, but then they turn around and read Celebrity Christians right? So they're turned off by celebrity Christians, and yet they're consuming the content almost exclusively of the Beth Moores, the Jackie Hill Perrys, the Tish Harrison Warrens, the Tim Kellers, the, you know, so I don't know that we can lay blame on any one group. It seems like we're all complicit in this. What's your take on that? How do we get out of this cycle?
0: Going back to the phrase attention economy, what we give our attention to reveals our ultimate loves and affections. And so if I say that I'm sick of celebrity Christians, (laughs) I turn around and consume all this content from and about celebrity Christians, I am fueling the problem that on paper, I would say, needs to be dismantled. I do think that for your average lay Christian, there is a call here to return to the centrality of the church, the local church, even to think about how we do discipleship, you know, how many small groups decide, okay, we're going to put on this video from Beth Moore together. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but are we outsourcing teaching? and reflection, and biblical study that could be done in the life of the local church? Are we outsourcing it to people with massive followings? What I hope readers get from my book is, is a return to the person of Christ. I mean, obviously, Jesus of Nazareth, he was famous. People talked about him and followed him and wanted to hear him speak and wanted to see him perform miracles. But we also see his choosing over and over to be obscure, to be humble, to be alone. He had 12 friends, which is a lot in my book but when you're in your 30s. But he was not known deeply by very many people. We also, of course, see Jesus's temptation to worldly power and his refusing it, choosing the way of the cross in order to be the expression of God's ultimate power over sin and death. So I think that Christians should try to be like Jesus. I mean, that shouldn't be a radical thing, and I'm very bad at it. But just coming back to Jesus's own grappling with power and ultimate refusal to take it up in a worldly way. I do think that that connects to these conversations about celebrity and celebrity power. And like I said earlier, I don't wish celebrity, especially massive celebrity, very quickly on anybody. I think that that is a spiritually dangerous place to find yourself.
1: Well, I really appreciated your book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. It's a topic that we all need to wrestle with and figure a way out of. What we can't do is keep going on like we are currently, where there's scandal after scandal. We've got to get back to the way of Jesus, to the way of the local community, of being known, of maybe not expecting too much from our Christian leaders. So I really appreciate your contribution on this. Hey, before we go, would you be willing to pray for us to pray for the health of the American church, that we would learn to follow Jesus and not a celebrity?
0: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Lord, we thank you for the conversation that Keith and I have been able to have today. And we hope that listeners benefit from it, that you would use it to stir our imaginations, to come back to your character your call for us, um, help us to be willing to reassess, um, our fascination with celebrity and including celebrity Christians. Um, and just give us a heart for being faithful to you in ordinary and unseen and humble ways. And are we willing to accept that help us to value faithfulness over success in all that we do and it's in your son's name we pray amen
1: amen i agree with that prayer thank you so much caitlin for joining us
0: thanks so much for having me